Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. We're going to shift topics now. We're going to talk about uh, and get a snapshot of ICU capacity in the Bay Area. Kaiser Permanente announced just this week that it will postpone elective procedures into January over concerns that COVID-19 hospitalizations may continue to grow over the holidays. The news comes as San Mateo County's ICU beds fill and the county works to secure more beds for the sick. We're going to get an update on Bay Area hospital capacity and hear why reported ICU numbers can be confusing. And joining us is San Francisco Chronicle health reporter, Aaron Alday. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you and also glad to have Stephen Parati with us, who is Executive Vice President of External Affairs with Kaiser Permanente and Chair of Infectious Diseases. And welcome, Dr. Parati. Good to be with you. Good to have you with us. And let me begin, Stephen Parati, with you. Uh, Kaiser now making the decision for elective, uh, uh, not well, non-urgent surgeries uh, uh, not to be uh, to be postponed. Actually, through January fourth, I ought to add, in the thir- uh, thirty-nine hospitals, uh, twenty-one here in Northern California, and there are seventeen in Southern California. Although they're postponing till January tenth, cancer is not included in this. I want to get to with you what's behind this. I presume it's not only the influx of COVID nineteen patients, but you're also trying to really prepare for the surges of the holiday. Well, that's right. And, you know, I've been saying that we actually are right now experiencing the Thanksgiving Day wave um, over the last couple of weeks. And I'm deeply concerned about a Christmas Day and, and future New Year's Day wave as well going into January. The reality is that in Southern California, our ICUs are completely full. Um, and in fact, we have flexed into multiple spaces where we're using alternative floors, uh, conference rooms, and uh, that have been repurposed and, and refitted into um, ICU floors, as well as our post-anesthesia care units. And that's really prompting the need to um, reduce, postpone, or cancel surgeries. In Northern California, fortunately, we've got probably half the number of cases that Southern California is experiencing but we need to be prepared. And so that's why we're taking proactive action now. And I should uh, correct the title that uh, was incorrect. Stephen Prady is Associate uh, Executive Director of Kaiser Permanente Group at Kaiser Permanente. And uh, let me actually ask you a a question which sort of looms over this whole discussion. And that is California itself is one of the states with the fewest number of ICU beds in the nation. And there's really a shortfall, an acute shortage. Why is that? Do you know? 
You know, it's a it's a complicated uh, set of uh, factors. Uh, the reality is that there's been consolidation of the number of hospitals that are in California, um, which has reduced the absolute amount of bed capacity. Um, we've seen reductions, of course, proportionate to that with intensive care unit beds. So some of this has to do with the, the economics of, of healthcare and how it's evolved over the last 20 years. Um, and I, I think we've seen that evolution also affect, of course, our public health infrastructure as well, which has um, really come to the fore here with this pandemic. And I hope that, you know, going forward, um, that there is going to be a focus on public health as it relates to the healthcare system, and then, of course, the public health infrastructure. And if you have questions about Bay Area ICU capacity, you can give us a call now. I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available to you. It's 866-733-6786. Again, you can join us toll-free right now at 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. I want to bring Aaron Alday into this, who once again is uh, with the San Francisco Chronicle and has been covering, well, the pandemic uh, brilliantly, I might add. Uh, Aaron, there's a lot of confusion over the metrics here. I want to talk with you about that. And before we get a picture from you about uh, non-Kaiser hospitals, uh, the, the, the reliability of these numbers that say 0% ICU beds um, seem to have to do with an algorithm and have to do with state capacity because uh, actually there are over 1,300 beds, I believe, that are available in the ICU. And here in Northern California, in the Bay Area, it's, there are more than 0%. Where do we come up? keep coming up with 0%? Yeah, it's it's pretty confusing. Um, and to to be honest, you know, I've talked with the state about this. Um, well, I've, I've emailed back and forth with them about it, um, and they have explanations that aren't actually even easy to unpack when they're explaining it to you. So their al- algorithm is is pretty confusing too. Um, so I'm not going to actually walk you through the algorithm, frankly, because it's it's really technical and doesn't actually clear things up very well. But they're, what what they're basically looking at when they look at IC capacity is how, what percentage of the patients in ICU currently are COVID-19. And that sort of helps them, you know, determine how many ICU beds they're going to have. They think they'll have available to treat people who aren't COVID to treat kind of all sorts of patients. So it's, it's kind of a complex algorithm that's supposed to kind of look at capacity in context of like what, what we would usually be seeing in an ICUs, what these ICUs are built around because and Dr. Prody, of course, could talk about this a lot, which is that, you know, our hospitals or ICUs are built to kind of reach capacity with flu season anyway. I mean, they kind of are designed around that. And so they, they factor in this algorithm, the COVID-19 cases to decide if they're actually either at or over capacity, um, and that's, that's basically what that's looking at, which I know isn't a very clear answer. There, the truth is there isn't a clear answer. But the other aspect of this, when, when you talk about being at zero capacity statewide, you know, a big reason we see that zero percent is because so many hospitals in Southern California and in the San Joaquin Valley are actually way over capacity. So capacity is defined as, you know, these licensed care, these licensed beds. So the the state actually licenses ICU beds and says each hospital, this is how many beds you officially technically have, according to state records. Well, each of these hospitals also has these surge plans where they can then extend past that. They can put these surge, these ICU beds in other locations, um, as Dr. Prody was talking about. Um, You know, they can double up rooms. They can 
put patients, you know, treat patients in the emergency room as intensive care. Um, so at some of these, you know, there are, there are some hospitals in, in LA that are at like 200%. So they're, you know, double their capacity really of ICU. And that's so, so over capacity that we're actually showing kind of, you know, as, as just sort of a record of total beds in the state, it shows us as being over capacity for the entire state. So that's why we see this 0% availability number. I, hope, so I don't the, know. I hope that that makes sense. <laughs> well, no, it makes sense. Uh, though you say, as you say, it's kind of labyrinthine and confusing, but yes. it's basically the California Department of Public Health saying 0% ICU beds because that's the availability statewide. And uh, I'm, I'm speaking about statewide. I'm interested in hearing from you about uh, emergency operations uh, or non-emergency operations and what's happening. I know Sutter is postponing uh, elective surgery, 24 hospitals here in Northern California, Good Samaritan and uh, Regional Medical Center in San Jose. And the reality is that um, those that are hardest hit are really almost bound, duty bound to uh, do away with uh, elective surgery, except for cancer. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that pretty much all of the hospitals, I think by county orders, you know, put off elective surgery back in the first, you know, kind of non-surge, I guess, but back in the spring when we when we got these first cases and we really took that very aggressive action um, and, and a lot of hospitals essentially just cleared everybody out, right? Like they didn't have any patients coming in. And what they found, I mean, that that felt right at the time, but they just found that 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 was really problematic and that people were delaying, you know, elective surgeries, elective procedures that they really needed. But it also created this sort of climate of fear where people felt like hospitals weren't a place where they could go and be safe. Um, and so I think a lot of the hospital personnel I've talked to have, have regrets about that decision that they made early on to just shut down all elective procedures um, back in the spring. And so they've been hesitant to to do that this time around. It's also a huge economic burden, right? Like these hospitals really rely on these patients, on these procedures, just to function, just to keep their finances um, going. So I think that they've just been, you know, hesitant for a lot of reasons and trying to be a little bit more kind of targeted about, um, you know, what types of procedures they are canceling and how long, you know, these cancellations are in effect. So as you pointed out, Kaiser is just for, you know, kind of a couple weeks to just sort of feel, get us, get us through this period. And then I think they'll, they'll come back, you know, I'm sure and reevaluate all of these hospitals well. Now, I just want to give some figures, uh, estimates nationwide, about 41% by June 30th and 12% put off emergency care, highest among blacks and Latinos and disabled. And we do want to hear from you if you have questions or comments. Uh, what are your questions about Bay Area ICU capacity in the winter surge? Give us a call, 866 866- 733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're getting an update on Bay Area Hospital capacity with San Francisco Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday and with Dr. Stephen Prati, who is Associate Executive Director with the Kaiser Permanente Medical Group. Permanente Medical Group at Kaiser Permanente. And uh, thank you, Prati. Let me ask you, uh, is there a health cost of postponing medical care? 
Well, absolutely. And, and that's why we're trying to take a measured approach. Um, when we talk about elective surgery, I mean, we're really talking about a whole spectrum. So, you know, there are cardiac procedures like heart procedures that are sometimes considered elective, but they're only elective for a certain period of time. And if you think about it, we've been in this pandemic for nine, 10 months. Um, so to Aaron's earlier point, the decision-making around what clinically makes sense for a patient uh, really comes down to an individual surgeon talking to that patient and saying, you know, we've, you know, postponed procedures for the course of 2020. And we now really need to be thoughtful about what we bring in and what we can continue to postpone. Um, so that's why you're hearing a little bit more of a discussion around shared decision-making with our patients to make sure that we get them in. Um, and it's actually why uh, I have a plea actually to your listeners to actually adhere to avoiding sharing each other's air, you know? So adhering to the mask wearing, washing your hands, adhering to the, actually the stay at home orders that are out there. That's gonna actually help preserve the capacity for these other critical procedures that need to happen in addition to COVID care. All those pleas notwithstanding, we're expecting a surge because there are many people who are traveling and wanting to go to get, get together during the holidays despite all of the caveats and all of the warnings, uh, unfortunately, uh, there will be a surge uh, because of all the people who are traveling, getting together. I wonder, uh, Dr. Brody, if you have any thoughts about the fact that there's now a case in Colorado uh, that suggested, and I think another case in addition to that, that this more transmissible form of the virus that we saw in the UK that has been really rampant in the UK is now here in the States and how this will affect hospital Capacity. Yes, I, I think it's a really important consideration. I, I think the reality is um, that it's here already in the United States, and I would assume, and I know the state is actually at work right now to identify uh, that B117 strain as being present in California as well. Um, it does appear from mathematical models to be more contagious. It is not surprising to me as an infectious disease specialist that the virus has mutated. Um, and so what my, again, plea here for people is that the way you reduce this kind of spread, the way you reduce transmission is actually you don't do the travel. You don't do these other things. You actually got to roll up your sleeves, make those hard decisions right now so that 2021 looks a whole lot different. Um, the other thing I'll just sort of say is that right now, um, the vaccine appears to be effective, um, obviously for the older strains, um, they're doing uh, a look at this new strain, um, we are very hopeful that it's not escaped um, from this, uh, you know, the vaccines that we have in place. But, you know, the way to make sure that we don't have vaccine escape is people actually adhere um, to the public health orders right now so that the vaccines will get us over the hump. Yeah, I've got a question from a listener named Gala who wants to know, will Kaiser Oakland be able to vaccinate patients? So we have actually begun vaccination of uh, the healthcare workers. And then of course, uh, CVS and Walgreens are participating in the federal program to vaccinate long-term care facility, skilled nursing facility residents. That's already in process. In fact, we've already vaccinated over 30,000 individuals in Northern California. We are eagerly awaiting um, delivery of the vaccines in January, February. The federal government anticipates ramping up of the distribution. Um, and we are uh, putting into place plans for being able to uh, vaccinate the general public. 
with, of course, the guidance of the CDC in terms of who would be prioritized first. Since you mentioned plans, let me go back to Aaron Alday. And Aaron, I wanted to ask you about plans that are in the works uh, uh, for alternative care sites and plan to ration care. And well, maybe you could comment also about problems with staffing, which are serious. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think we're at, fortunately, that that place in the Bay Area. Um, I'll just kind of put that right out there. Um, you know, we're still in in OK shape in the Bay Area as far as, um, you know, our ICU levels and, and ability to provide care to people. Um, but things are looking pretty grim, um, especially in Southern California and in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, you know, the hospitals, the, the state actually put in place and asked the hospitals to put in place these crisis care plans. So basically how they would respond, what, how, they, how they would kind of shift their, their treatment, sort of triage patients if they reached a point where, you know, they had to kind of pick and choose the type of, of care they were going to be able to provide to patients. Um, and, you know, certainly some of those, those hospitals down in Southern California are looking over those plans and evaluating them. And, you know, as far as I know, none of them have been, have been put in place. But when you talk about rationing care, that's when you're having to make decisions about, you know, somebody has been in the ICU and on a ventilator for a period of time and is not improving, is unlikely to improve. Are we going to, you know, provide kind of comfort care to that person and move on to the aggressive treatment of, of somebody who has a better chance of surviving? Um, so those are the kinds of decisions you're talking about. Again, as, you know, there, nobody's at that point yet, but, you know, when you get to how overloaded the hospitals are down in Southern California, that becomes, you know, a very real possibility. And we should mention, as long as we were talking about different regions here, that the northernmost counties are not under stay-at-home mandate. They've got about uh, close to 20, over 28 percent availability. Um, let me bring a caller on here. David from Alameda joins us. David, you're on. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, I just wanted to let you know I'm, I'm an emergency physician here in the Bay Area. Actually, on my way to work, so sorry if there's some road noise. I want to encourage every listener not to delay care for other non-COVID conditions. While we are busy, we are providing the standard of care for our patients. And I've seen, uh, as many other doctors have, just travesties when people have delayed care because they were nervous about getting COVID or nervous because the hospitals were getting busy. I mean, please uh, ask everybody if there's an emergency. We're there for you, and I, and I don't want you to delay your care so that you can avoid anything bad. We're busy, but we are moving things along, and we're doing okay here, at least in the Bay Area. Yeah, thank you for that, David. Let me follow up with that and go back to you, uh, if I could, Stephen Prady, because um, Bay Area hospitals are full, uh, but there is room at some of these sites. Uh, I mean, it's what Aaron said a moment ago. We're in decent shape here in the Bay Area. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make, and and I want to actually endorse um, the the callers, uh, you know, sentiments that uh, we do want people to access care that they need, and it's different again than where we were in March, where we were still figuring out what are the protocols to safely bring uh, patients in and take care of them. We got those protocols in place. It is safe to be seen in our emergency departments or in our medical office buildings. Um, so I think that's absolutely right. Um, and there have been surge plans that are activated and in place in the Bay Area. Um, and the Bay Area, I have said actually in, in other fora, um, that it has been a beacon um, for actually the adherence to a lot of the public health measures that we've been referencing. I do want to make one other comment um, just to paint the picture, because I, I understand how complicated it is to try to understand 
do we have ICU capacity or not? Um, I, I just wanna stress that the, the healthcare system is under strain. And I'll just give you a couple of examples here that um, I was on an incident command uh, call today with my, my own large group in Northern California. And we're having to think about how do we make sure that we appropriately use oxygen? How do we make sure that we're appropriately using sterile water when we're um, nebulizing treatments for breathing treatments for patients? Because those are actually now in short supply because of this critical situation in Southern California. So that's why it is so important um, that you know adherence to the public health measures is critical. Yeah, in Los Angeles, they're running short on oxygen supplies. They're also turning ambulances away. I mean, as Aaron said, it's it's critical there. It's reached a uh, a state that's uh, even beyond critical in many ways. Let me bring another caller on here. Carl from Oakland, you're on. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I have a question about how effective ICU admissions and treatment are in saving lives. Uh, uh some significant number of people don't make it even though they get ICU treatment, but also a very significant number of people do recover. And uh, maybe our guests can comment on that. Do you have any data on that, Aaron, all day? Shed some light um, Are we talking, I assume we're talking specifically on COVID-19. I believe um, so, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, you know, I don't have the exact data right at my fingers, but I will say that um, it's important to note that it varies dramatically by, you know, age group um, and, you know, pre-existing conditions, um, what kind of shape the, the person is coming into the ICU. Um, so I think, you know, in some cases, it's, it's a, even in the ICU, it's a pretty good survivability rate. Um, but, you know, if you come in and you're, you're very old um, and, and have these pre-existing conditions, then, then it's true that it's, it's not, um, it's, it's a much higher um, fatality rate once you get into the ICU. But no, unfortunately, I don't have those, those numbers right. Can you shed any light uh, here, Stephen Perotti? Yeah, I think we've seen actually an evolution uh, when it comes to COVID-19 care. So um, we now have a couple of therapeutic agents. Uh, one of them is called dexamethasone. Another one's called remdesivir. They actually have shown a clinical benefit, um, either in preventing the, the need for ICU care or uh, reducing the, the severity or death from uh, ICU care. In, in the case of uh, dexamethasone, actual significant reductions in mortality. The other thing I'll just mention is that we've learned a lot in terms of how to manage a person that requires mechanical ventilation. So we're using different techniques now, which have improved actually the length of stay um, as well as the mortality uh, in the ICU. So I, I think there's been significant progress. Um, that being said, of course, the best, uh, the best medicine is prevention. And so, you know, getting through this so that we can get the vaccine so people aren't having to land the ICU is going to be really critical. And I'm going to read an uh, email from Robert who writes, your guest mentioned that hospitals making money off elective procedures factored into their consideration of whether to pause these procedures or not. Here is yet one more argument for Medicare for all when our hospitals won't be run as businesses. Earlier this year, when such procedures were paused, nurses were laid off across the country because it was not profitable to keep them on. Uh, this then led to more staffing pro problems later. And a question from a listener, a specific question, uh, I'll go again to you, Dr. Uh, Perotti. Uh, this listener wants, says, I'm concerned about my 85-year-old mother going to the doctor for any procedure at this point. It feels like 
If it's not urgent, she's better off with a telehealth appointment. Uh, well, what do you think? I, I mean, in general, I, as we said earlier, a lot of people are because of COVID are very afraid to go into emergency or people are afraid to get medical care in general. Yeah, so that's completely understandable. Um, and let me just say that, you know, we've, again, evolved over time. So at the beginning of the pandemic, um, where we knew less about how the the virus was transmitted, we did move to mostly telehealth care. That being said, um, the reality is that much care um, can continue to be managed by telehealth. And so right now, almost 50% of our appointments, whether they're specialty or primary care, are still done by telehealth. But not everything can be handled by telehealth. And I want to really emphasize um, that if you need that care, you need that inpatient appointment we can do that safely. Um, and that can be done both in the medical office building setting, the clinic setting, and the emergency department. And we've got the protocols in place to do it well. Well, let me go back, Aaron, all day to you and just ask a question about preparation of the hospitals. I mean, are they generally prepared, in your judgment, for this cascade of issues that people are going to have because of delayed care? I mean, they're prepared in the sense that that, you know, that's that's what they do. They'll provide the care. But, you know, I will say that, you know, like a, a month or so ago, I, I went down to um, regional medical center down in, in San Jose um, and just kind of toured around and they showed me around and talked a bunch about what they were dealing with. And they were saying that, you know, the patients with the delayed care was almost as much of a factor for them as, as COVID-19 um, just because people, the, the people that what they were treating when they came in, with, you know, heart attacks, with heart issues, with, you know, all kinds of things that they were so much sicker than they would have been if they hadn't been, you know, delaying their care, if they hadn't been afraid to come in earlier, if they hadn't been putting off, you know, visits with doctors, that kind of thing. And this is, you know, a whole lot, I mean, there's a whole lot of, of existing conditions that people have, you know, diabetes, heart conditions, um, you know, that, that really they, they should be kind of being in regular touch with their doctor, um, you know, if, if not in person, then telehealth, but, but you know, it, everything kind of gets pushed off. Everything kind of gets delayed when we're in this pandemic kind of crisis situation. And they were saying that that was just putting a very big strain on their emergency room, especially, but also in, in all other parts of the hospital to be treating the, these patients who were so much sicker than they were used to, to seeing. And a question uh, in a tweet, uh, Aaron, from a listener named Laura, who wants to know, will some kind of rationing happen if capacity gets to zero? And what would be the criteria? Um, I would be really, really shocked if we reached that point in the Bay Area, to be honest. Um, I think we're so far away from being at a point of needing to, to ration care in the Bay Area. So, you know, it's obviously something everybody here keeps an incredibly close eye on. I'm sure that, that Dr. Purdy and his folks have those kinds of plans, you know, in mind. They know what that looks like, but it's, I'm sure he could speak to this, that they're a long way from, from having to, to do that in the Bay Area. But again, you know, that's those are the kinds of decisions they're running up against um, in Southern California. It's really awful. I mean, they're already, in a sense, having to make these sort of day to day judgment calls in, in Southern California in terms of, you know, who's even going to be getting that ambulance ride to the emergency room um, when when more than 90 percent of your hospital emergency rooms are on diversion. That means you're sending away ambulances. You're making judgment calls all the time as to who's you know, who's worth kind of not worth, <laughs> that's not fair, but you know, who, who do we need to treat? Who absolutely needs to be here and who can we sort of send home? Who can we try to send to another hospital? So, I mean, in that sense, they're already making those kind of rationing decisions they are already triaging patients. 
Um, and that's just never a place where you want to be. You want to be able to just treat, you know, all comers and, and be thoughtful about every single person that comes in your doors. Well, it's like a war zone down there in many instances, unfortunately. And you're right. Uh, it gives almost new meaning to triage. Uh, I'm wondering, though, uh, we're coming up on the end of uh, the hour here, but uh, uh, if I go back to you, Dr. Prodi, there's a listener named Pete who says, uh, wants to know about this new version of the virus uh, this new variant, is it more transmissible or is it simply more infectious? So those are almost uh, kind of one in the same. So um, it does appear based on, again, the mathematical modeling that they've done in the UK. Um, and, and just by virtue of the fact that it's uh, this new strain has managed to outcompete the prior strain that was in the UK would indicate that it is likely that it's more contagious. That means it's more easy to spread it. Um, so if I cough, and I'm not masked and you're not masked, you're more likely to pick up the virus and get infected. What we haven't seen is that it causes more severe disease. So that means that you're not any more likely um, to get sick and progress to have to be in an ICU per se, as opposed to if you got the prior strain. But what that raises for me is a great deal of concern because you know, just by virtue of numbers, the more people that get infected, the more strain there's going to be on our hospital capacity. So that's why it's just so critically important that uh, now more than ever, uh, that we adhere to those good public health measures. We'll have to leave it there, but I want to extend thanks, to Stephen Prody. Good to have you with us. Appreciate you being with us this hour. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen Prody, Associate Executive Director of the Permanente Medical Group at Kaiser Permanente. And thank you, Aaron Alde. Good to have you with us as well. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. Aaron Alde is San Francisco Chronicle Health Reporter. And we're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, an hour repeat at 10 to 11 in the evening. You can always let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And let me extend thanks to all of uh, you who have been with us these two, this first hour of Forum, another hour ahead with Mina Kim. And wish you all a happy new year and a safe new year. And above all, indeed, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.